It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Are you ready for some high adventure? Coming up next on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time, presenting The Fisher of Men, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Now, Mr. Solomon, your letter said you had a connection to the Bradford train robbery you wished to discuss with me. It was my business partner, Lyle Montague, who was robbed of the diamond necklace he was transporting. Typically, we deal only in art, but Montague bought a very valuable blue diamond necklace. May I ask the value? He paid 70,000 pounds and considered that an excellent bargain. I should mention Montague is the chief buyer for the firm and spent much of his time traveling the European continent for items useful to the firm. How did he come about carrying the necklace alone on the train? I would expect additional security for an item of such value. Security for a large painting, yes. But we did not think it was necessary for something easily carried in a pocket or bag. And where was the necklace purchased? Russia. There was something about the setting Montague didn't like, so he brought it to London to have it reset. To Messrs. Binks of Old Bond Street. Uh, They're a well-known company in London. Do you suspect their involvement in the robbery? Oh, gracious, no. Something happened while Montague was there. He carried the necklace from the back workshop to the display area to look at it under better light. Mr. Binks was nervous of the public display with good reason, for he saw a man lingering at the door watching Mr. Montague. There's nothing remarkable about that. When a man stands up on a shop front window with blue diamonds in his hands, he's rather likely to attract attention. I wouldn't have thought twice of it, to be honest. It is only after I heard Montague had been drugged and robbed that I suspected something. Now, how did the robbery come about after Mr. Montague had the necklace back in his possession? About 5 p.m. last night, he walked back to my flat where he had been staying while in London. From there, we walked some, then took the omnibus the remainder of the way to the Waterloo Station for him to catch the 9.15 train to Isleworth. Omnibus? With 70,000 pounds of diamonds? It's not so surprising. People who handle small but portable valuables seem to resemble those who habitually handle explosives. They gradually become unconscious of the risks. At Isleworth, Montague was to meet with a potential buyer, then continue on to Brussels to start another one of his tours in search of valuables. But he never made it to Isleworth. Now, according to Jervis, the paper reported that at the Brentford stop, Mr. Montague's unconscious body was found in a private first-class compartment, jammed under the seat. That is correct. He was under the effects of heavy chloroform that was violently and unskillfully administered. The police surgeon had him taken to a local nursing home to recover. The diamonds, as you can imagine, were gone. It was through inspecting the contents of his pockets his identity was determined, and I was sent a telegram. The paper also reported that an empty bag was found on the pavement along the tracks, between Barnes and Chiswick. That seems to indicate at least a general vicinity of where the attack took place. Now, Mr. Solomon... What is it you would like from me? I'd like you to handle the case. Go to Brentford and talk to Montague if you can. 
I don't know what evidence Scotland Yard has to go on to find the robber. A Superintendent Miller is handling the case. Oh, we've worked with Miller. Very well, Mr. Solomon. I'll, I'll be in touch. If you would be so kind as to let the nursing home know that we will be stopping by, I would appreciate it. Any other questions? Well, not related to the Montague case, but what about those things on the side table? Thrown over a wall during a chase. Perhaps the doctor wouldn't mind having a look at them. It's a nice little problem. Yeah, what's the problem? We have a leather handbag and a walking stick. What sort of person is the owner? Where has he come from, and why did he run from the constable on duty in King's Road, Chelsea? What happened to make the constable suspect something? Nothing, really, except it was four in the morning. He decided to cross the road and ask the fellow what he was about at that hour, but the man took off running. Chased the man down a side street, where the fellow dropped the bag and stick and jumped over the wall like a fox. Did the constable get a good look? Not in the dark. He tracked the footprints across the few gardens out to a street, but lost him. He ran up and down, blowing the whistle, but no sign of the runner. After that, he went back and collected the bag and walking stick and had them sent to us to identify. And no arrest has been made? (laughs) Well, a constable in Oakley Street, who had heard the whistle, arrested a man carrying a suspicious-looking object. But he turned out to be a cornet player coming home from the theater. Let's have a look at the bag. I take it you've already examined it. Thoroughly. But everything has been put back as we found it. It's a good bag. Uh, Quite expensive, though it seems well used. Uh, You notice the muddy marks on the bottom? Yes. No doubt from when he dropped the bag to jump over the wall. Possibly, though it doesn't look like street mud. Let's see the contents. Here's a paper to lay everything out on. Mm, Item one. A small leather toiletry bag containing the usual items. Two folding straight razors with the necessary sharpening and cleaning tools. A folding shaving brush, soaps, toothbrush, nail file, button hook, corn razor, and a small clothes brush, and a, a pair of small hair brushes. I'm aware of that. It seems to me, Badger, this case suggests an answer to one of your questions. Well, I don't see how. Tell me what it suggests to you. Well... It suggests to me a middle-aged or elderly man who has a beard but no mustache. A healthy man, neat, orderly, and careful as to his appearance. A man who is long accustomed to traveling. I still don't see how you arrived at all those facts. They're not facts, Badger. I I said suggestions. I can see what you're getting at, Thorndyke. It's a traveling case that only gets used during travel, and it's well-worn. The razors are worn down, and it takes many years for that particular brand to do such. You don't wear a toothbrush down like this on a half-dozen rickety teeth. How do you know he wears a beard but not a mustache? Ah, Badger, it's fairly obvious. We see that he has razors and uses them, and we also see he has a beard. Do we? How do we? This hair from one of the brushes is not scalper. I'd say it comes from the side of the chin. It looks to me like he's got lice. (laughs) So it does. But actually, the appearances are deceptive. This is what is called a maniliform hair. It's it's like a string of beads. I remember reading something on that. The hair is diseased, perhaps of an abnormal condition is a better way of putting it. It looks like a string of beads, an early case of hair shaft fracture. Is it common? It's not a rare disease, if you can call it a disease, but it is a rare condition if you take the population as a whole. (laughs) 
It is a rather remarkable coincidence that it should happen to occur in this particular case. Oh, my dear Miller, surely your experience must have impressed on you the astonishing frequency of the unusual. I have handled some odd cases. What's that other thing from the bag? Dirty towel. You're welcome to look at it if you think it'll be helpful. Hmm, half a towel to be exact. Very dirty with a pile of grass. Uh, evidently used as packing material. Lock picking set? That would have been hard to explain away. What's that? Something just fell from the clump of grass in your hands, Thorndike. It looks like a chrysalis. No, actually it's a shell. Uh, the Clausilia biplicata, to be precise. Uh, more commonly known as the Thames door snail. I don't care what its beastly name is. I want to know whose bag this is. Badger is very obvious, but still, I think I'd like to fill in a few more details before making a definitive statement. You didn't solve it already, did you? No, you couldn't have. Uh, Shall we take a glance at the walking stick? Indistinct, uh, made of common ash, crooked handle, darkened from contact with a hand. The mud on the stick doesn't seem like street mud. I can't think of a place where it would get three inches deep. Yes, that is a question. Our gentleman was a thrifty man. Look at this. The metal plate at the end of the stick has been worn through, so he drove a steel boot stub into the end. Uh, Badger? Yes? You'd better make note of this. 23, 30 seconds is the diameter of the boot stud. Anything else? I don't believe so. You'll hear from us, Miller, if we pick up anything that will be useful to you. Now, Jervis, we really must be off. Good afternoon. Dr. Thorndike, I assume? Yes, and my colleague, Dr. Jervis. I'm Sister Carolyn. Mr. Salomon told me that you would probably call. I'm afraid I haven't very good news for you. The patient is still unconscious. That is rather remarkable. It is. Dr. Kingston is somewhat puzzled by this prolonged stupor. He's inclined to suspect a large dose of morphine, in addition to the effect of the chloroform and shock. He's probably right, and the marvel is that the man is alive at all after such outrageous treatment. Oh, yes, indeed. He he must be pretty tough. Uh, may we still see him, sister? Oh, yes. I'm instructed to give you every assistance. Dr. Kingston would like to have your opinion on the case. His condition doesn't appear alarming. Do you notice the state of the face, Charles? Oh, you mean the chloroform burns? Yes. You know... Thorndike, Mr. Montague greatly resembles the description you gave Inspector Badger earlier. It's rather an odd coincidence. The coincidence is closer than that, Jervis. Look at the beard itself. Well, I'll be. Hair shaft fracture. Are those Mr. Montague's things, Sister Carolyn? Yes, his clothes and the things taken from his pockets, and that's his bag. It was found on the line and sent here a couple of hours ago. It's empty. He seems to have the normal things one would find in a pocket. Keys, wallet, business cards. Uh, Have you found anything with the bag? A plain imitation leather bag, fairly new, rather worse for the wear, and lined with coarse linen. Two large pockets roughly stitched to the inside. No other contents? No. What time did Dr. Kingston come to see the patient, Sister Carolyn? About ten o'clock this morning, and he was not able to stay more than half an hour, as he had an appointment... But he said he would look in again this evening. You cannot stay to see him, I suppose. I'm afraid not. In fact, we must be off now, for both Dr. Jervis and I have some other matters to attend to. Are you going straight back to the office, Jervis? Yes. Aren't you? No, I have a little expedition planned. 
Oh, have you? Yes, in fact... Oh, aha, just a minute, Juris. Fishing tackle? What on earth do you need that for? Good afternoon. I'm looking for a fishing rod, a line and one or two hooks. Nothing in particular except inexpensive. A float as well. The largest one you have. You must excuse me, Thorndike, if I venture to point out that the Greenland whale no longer frequents the upper reaches of the Thames. You mind your own business, Jervis. I like a float you can see. It's a gigantic, pot-bellied, scarlet and green atrocity. You can't miss it. Well, that'll make the job easier, I suppose. But why on earth do you want such an enormous float? Why? It'll be visible a quarter mile away. Exactly. What more could a fisher of men require? You're hiding something. And what use could you possibly have for burnt umber powder? To mix with plaster. Well, why would you want to color plaster? Now, Jervis, you are not doing yourself justice. An investigator of your experience shouldn't ask for explanations for the obvious. And tell me why you asked if I was going straight back to the office. I might want some assistance later. Probably Bolton will be able to do it, but I wanted to know if you'd both be within reach of a telegram. Why would you send me a telegram when I'm here? I may not want any assistance after all. You're going to have it whether you want it or not. You've got something up your sleeve again, and I want it in. <laughs> I like your enthusiasm, Jervis, but it's quite possible that shall merely find a mare's nest. Very well, then. I'll help you find it. I've had plenty of experience in that line, to say nothing of my natural gifts. So... You seem interested in the ground. Is this where you plan to display your monstrous float for the world to see? Our fishing ground, yes, but we'll need to look it over carefully for just the right place to set up. Was there ever a time in your life that you did not study the footprints on whatever path you were walking? Yes, why do you ask? No reason. I think we'd better turn back a little way. We seem to have overshot our mark. Have we? Yes. No. Here we have it. This. Uh, here. I think this will be our pitch. What are you going to do? I'm going to make one or two casts. And meanwhile, you'd better get the fishing rod fixed together so as to divert the attention of any passersby. Well, this is a highly visible path. How can someone not notice the plaster while it sets? Oh, the burnt umber powder turns the plaster brown. Brilliant, Thorndike. Here's the line for the ride. Now keep a good lookout and let me know if anyone is coming. Do you expect someone to come around? You said it yourself, Jervis. We are on a highly visible path. I wish our appearance was more in character with the part of the rustic angler. And for heaven's sake, keep the float out of sight, or we shall collect a crowd. <laughs> well, the float was intended for Bolton. He would have loved it. And the crowd would have been rather an advantage, as you will appreciate when you come to use it. By the way, did you get a good look at the impression I'm casting? No. I've been too busy pretending to fish. Why, that is the stick that we saw at Scotland Yard. I should expect it to be, and I believe it is, but we shall be better able to judge from the casts, which appear to be set. Look at that. A perfect copy of the end of a walking stick with a worn boot stud plainly visible. 23, 30 seconds was the diameter, as I recall? Yes. Does it match? 23, 30 seconds. Good. What are you doing? Why'd you throw the other plaster cast away? I only need one. Uh, you notice he stuck the walking stick into the ground. Why do you suppose he did that? Presumably to leave his hands free. 
Yes. Now, consider why he wanted his hands free. Look around and tell me what you see. I see very indistinctive surroundings. There's a shabby-looking pollen willow, an assortment of suburban vegetation, an obsolete tin saucepan, and a bald spot where somebody seems to have pulled up a small patch of turf. Now, you'll also notice a certain amount of dry, powdered earth distributed rather evenly over the bottom of the ditch. And that patch of turf was cut with a large knife before it was pulled up. Now, why do you suppose it was pulled up, Jervis? There's no use guessing. Eh, perhaps not. Over there, between the roots of the willow. See that patch of grass that looks denser than you'd expect from its position? I wonder... A clump of grass? See if it matches the vault. Ha! The plot thickens. Something seems to have been either buried or dug up there. More probably buried. I do hope and believe that my learned friend is correct. What do you expect to find there? I have a faint hope of finding something wrapped in half of a very dirty towel. Well, then you'd better find it fast. There's a man coming along the path from the Putney direction. As I'm digging, I, 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 I can feel something. Th- there. Just as I suspected. Is that... A- Half a towel wrapped around the detailed Morocco case that no doubt contains... The blue diamond necklace. Hey, quick, hide it in the forensic case. We need to remove all traces of our activity here. Here's a worm. What am I to do with that? Out fishing, remember, Jervis. Get your pocket knife out and dig up a few more. You must have worms to bait the sea creatures. I, I need to run up to the police station, and you need to stay here. You don't move away from this spot for any reason until I come back or send someone to relieve you. Here's the float. You'll want that. Looking for worms? I have some. Your pal seems to have had enough fishing. He hasn't got a rod, but he'll be back presently. Ah, well, won't do him any good here. The place where the fish come up is a quarter of a mile farther down. You're just round the bend there. That's a prime pitch. You just come along with me and I'll show you. I must stay here until my friend comes back, but I'll tell him what you said. My, some float you have there. Yes, I know. Uh, My friend picked it up. Doesn't know much about fishing, does he? I suppose he knows a great deal more than appearances let on. You sure you don't want to try that spot down the road? I'm quite all right here. My friend won't know where to find me if I move. I'll hang about and let him know. No need. He'll be back before long. Uh Uh-huh. Are you sure your friend is coming back? Been nearly three quarters of an hour. Uh, perhaps he misplaced his rod and had to look for it. Huh. That's a regular procession over on the bridge. The bridge? I'll say it is. Two taxicabs, three cyclists, and a few people on foot. Uh, headed this way. Awful lot headed this way. Oh, my friend has returned. Rocked a whole lot with him, he did. I'm out of here. He's run off that way. Miller, Badger, and the rest will have a good chase on their hands, but the undercovers on bicycles will be an asset. I don't think they'll lose them this time. Well, how did you know he was the man we were looking for? I didn't, though I had pretty strong grounds for suspicion. I merely brought the police to set a watch on the place and arrange an ambush. Their encircling movement was just an experimental bluff. Though they might have been wary of arresting the fellow if he hadn't taken fright and bolted. How did Miller and Badger end up here? I thought you were going to the police station, not all the way back to Scotland Yard. 
Uh, by a lucky chance, they were at Chiswick making inquiries, and I was able to telephone to them to meet me at the bridge. Oh, there's Miller returning. <laughs> Hello there. We got him. Badger is taking him over to the yard, but I needed to see what was up over here. He's the right man, I suppose. But he hasn't got the diamonds on him. Of course he hasn't. Well, do you do you know where they are? There you are. One diamond necklace in his case, wrapped in half a towel. I shall want a receipt for the diamonds. Where did you get this? I dug it up at the foot of that willow. But how did you know it was there? I, I didn't, but I thought I might as well look. You know. Jervis, I believe the good doctor keeps a tame clairvoyant. <laughs> I assure you he doesn't. May I take it? that you can establish a case against this man so that we can get a remand until Mr. Montague is well enough to identify him? You may. Uh, let me know when and where he is to be charged, and I will attend and give evidence. Here's your receipt. I'll leave you both to your fishing. I told you that float would draw a crowd. I want to make two more casts, one of the right foot of the man who buried the jewels and one of the right foot of the prisoner. They're obviously identical, as you can see by the arrangement of the nails and the shape of the new patch on the sole. I shall put the casts in evidence and compare them with the prisoner's right boot. You suspected that man all along. That's why you left. You wanted his footprints. Of course I did, Jervis. Case over. I beg your pardon, but it isn't. I want a full explanation. It is evident that from the house at Brentford you made a beeline to that willow. You knew then just exactly where the necklace was hidden. For all I know, you might have had that knowledge when we left Scotland Yard. Well, as a matter of fact, I had. I went to Brentford primarily to verify the ownership of the wallet and the bag. But what was it that directed you with such certainty to the Hammersmith towing path? Do you remember what I told Badger about the snails? I remember that you gave him the name of that little shell that dropped out of the handful of grass. Exactly, and that was the crucial fact. It told us where the handful of grass had been gathered. I can't imagine how. Surely you'll find snail shells all over the country. In general, yes, but this specific snail has a delicate habitat and, sadly, is going into extinction. Therefore, it lives only in two places along the Thames. One of these is in Wiltshire, and the other is in the right bank of the Thames at Hammersmith. The Hammersmith location is quite small. Walk down a few hundred yards toward Putney, and you have walked out of its domain. Walk up a few hundred yards toward the bridge, and again, you've walked out of its territory. At the risk of sounding impatient, what does that matter to the case? Their locale is small, but they are plentiful within those areas. If you correlate the shell with the grass... Is the grass special, too? It only grows by certain willow trees, so yes. So... Taking those three into account, I had a fairly good idea of where to start looking. Does the Wiltshire site have willows? Yes, but we had nothing to connect it to Wiltshire. Because the Hammersmith area is along the train line. Ah, precisely, my good friend. We also had the mud on the bag and walking stick. As you noted yourself, the mud on the stick was far too deep and of the wrong color to be street mud. Therefore, something unpaved. Like this river bath. But how does the bag fit into this? Well, we knew that the contents of a bag had been stolen. We knew that an empty bag had been picked up on the line between Barnes and Chiswick, and it was probable that the thief had left the train at the latter station. The empty bag had been assumed to be Mr. Montague's, whereas the probability suggested it was a thief's bag, and that Mr. Montague's had been taken away with its contents. 
So your trip to see Mr. Montague wasn't so much to see him as it was to see the bag the police found alongside the tracks. To a degree, yes. It was clear the moment I laid eyes on it that Badger's bag was Montague's. The other bag was a shoddy imitation leather bag in poor condition with pockets the exact size for the lockpicking set. It seemed obvious the bag was the robber's. I got all of that from the mud. It wasn't street mud. It also wasn't Montague who got mud on it. You might have noticed the high amounts of clay in the mud smears, indicating the bag was placed on the ground in an area with clay mud. Combine that with the location needed for the snail shells, the willow tree, and the grass. He must have put the bag down and stuck the walking stick into the dirt to free his hands. Then he dug out the hole and buried the necklace case, wrapped in a towel to keep it clean. When you add to our growing list of locations, the specific things, the distinctive steel boot nail used in the base of the walking stick and needing an impression of the walking stick at least three inches deep, this was the only place it could be. And the footprints? Uh, we were lucky there. He doubled back to the bridge, so all I had to do was follow until he turned around and we could be pretty certain there would be a hole in the ground in that area. And there was. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Written by R. Austin Freeman. Adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Starring Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndike. Roy Nessel as Dr. Christopher Jervis. Also in the cast were Bob Helling as Franklin Solomon. Brian Grote as Inspector Badger. Joseph McGuire as Patrick Covenley. Tristan Johnson as Sister Carolyn. And William Mask as Superintendent Miller. I'm your announcer, Ryan Barker. Sound design and dialogue editing, Jay Charles. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. Recorded in partnership at KSVR Studios in Mount Vernon, Washington. With financial support from Kim Abbey, members of the RTP Repertory Company, and Soundly, the sound effects platform. You can find this and other series at podcastplayhouse.org or wherever you get podcasts. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation.